everybody? Good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Good. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is <laughs> where we need to go. I had Jason's Bible. I got two of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where you need to go. Last week we saw Paul switch from defense to offense as he went after the false apostles that are causing so much trouble in the church at Corinth. By way of application, we talked first about how we need to do the work that God has called us to do. God has called us all who are his. He has called us and he has equipped us, each one of us, to do a specific work for him. And where we get in trouble is when we either choose to do no work or when we want to do someone else's work, the work that he has called and equipped someone else to do. I told you that if we will simply do what God has called us to do, what he has equipped us to do, if we will all simply do that, it will be beautiful and it will work like a well-oiled machine. So whatever that is in your life, whether it's preaching the gospel from a pulpit or serving in the nursery, do it, right? We talked last week about how feet go and hands do. So do what he has called you to do. We talked also last week about how as we grow in faith, we should also grow in our burden for those who are outside the church. One of the things that Paul says is that he hopes things will get stabilized in Corinth so that from Corinth he can reach even further. You see, he has eyes beyond what's right in front of him. He wants to take the gospel to the nations who have never heard before. And as we grow at First Baptist Church, that should be the byproduct of our growth. It's a scary thing when we grow in our knowledge, when we grow in our understanding of scripture, but we don't grow in our effort at reaching out to those who are outside the church. And so this morning even, I'm gonna give you an easy opportunity to reach out outside of these walls. Up here at the front during the invitation time, we have 500 little cards that have information about First Baptist Church, and I want everybody to take one or two and go out this week and invite someone to First Baptist Church for Easter. What a great week to invite someone to church, right? Come on Easter Sunday. We will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will proclaim the resurrection from the dead, right? And so do that. Reach out. Say, hey, come to church. It's an easy way to do it. By no means is that all we want to be doing, right? We don't want to just be inviting people to church. We want to take the gospel as far as we can. But this is a very simple, easy, reachable, doable way that we can be reaching out from here. So will you do that at the end of the service today? Excellent. Good. So we talked about how real growth in faith should produce in us a greater concern for those who are outside the church. And then finally, we talked about boasting in the Lord boasting in the Lord, not necessarily because of what he is doing through us, but because of what he has done in us. If you belong to him, if you are his by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he has adopted you into his family, right? He has raised your life out of the pit. You've been on a, on a kick about that lately, right? He's raised us up from the pit and he set us on the rock. That is a beautiful picture, right? If we belong to him, we have been raised from the dead. That's something to boast about. Not We haven't done any of that, have we? No, but he has done it for us. And so we will boast in him. It's a story that we should tell to folks, right? We should tell other folks what he has done for us. We were dead and now we are alive and that's a story worth telling. So tell it this week for his glory. Brag on him and boast in the Lord. This week, what you're going to see happen in chapter 11 is, is you're going to see Paul's great concern for the church at Corinth and his burden about the potential that the trouble that these false apostles are causing in Corinth, that, that it, it just has potential to send them off into a very dangerous place. And so Paul is going to lovingly step in to protect them. 
you're going to see great weight in the text today. You're going to see a heaviness that lies over all of it and a seriousness over all of it. We are not just talking about some selfish men who want the spotlight on themselves. We're not just talking about some guys who may be a little bit shady in their character. We are talking about some guys who are preaching a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, right? We are talking about some guys who are preaching a different Christ, who is not the Christ, and they are talking about a different spirit, which is not the spirit of the Lord. And so Paul is going to be very serious about the things he's going to say to the church at Corinth today. And we want to hear it, hear it with that kind of seriousness. So chapter 11, verses 1 to 6 is what we'll look at today. That's right. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different gospel, which a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love for us and your jealousy for us. That you want the best for us. And we know that the best for us is you. There is nothing better, there's no one better than you and your grace and your love and your glory in our lives. And God, we are thankful today for men and women who love us and are jealous for us and want the best things for us. They want you for us. Thank you for moms and dads and Sunday school teachers and pastors who don't want us to be led astray away from Christ to a different gospel, which is no gospel. I thank you for those people who watch over us and protect us and teach us. God, we want to stand firm today, and we want to grow today in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. We know that the deceiver is out there adversary is out there trying to steer us away, trying to lead us astray. God, we want to stand firm today on the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel and resist the schemes of the devil and walk with you in faithfulness. God, we cannot do this alone. We recognize we can't do any of this alone. We cannot read and study and understand and apply by ourselves, we need you. So we invite you to come invade us, teach us, grow us, change us for your glory and your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm excited to preach to you today from this text. I think this is brilliant. I think it is captivating what we see in the words today, and, and there, there's a tendency when I'm so excited about a text like I am today that I kind of miss the point in getting it all out.
like it gets in my head and it gets in my heart and it, it just bubbles up and I kind of go crazy when I get up here. And I don't, I don't want to do that today. I want to be clear and I want you to see uh, what I have seen, what the Lord has shown me in the text today. And I hope that, that you get it even just a little bit the way God has, uh, has, has touched my life with this word today. So first thing we see in this text is in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. He talks about a little foolishness and some divine jealousy. Foolishness and jealousy don't sound like words that would be fitting for a talk from an apostle to his church. Foolishness and jealousy sound like sinful words, don't they? In fact, a lot of times when scripture talks about foolishness, it's condemning foolishness. A lot of times when it talks about jealousy, it is condemning jealousy. But Paul here talks about both of these things in a positive sense. When he talks about foolishness in verse 1, and he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, really what's going on here is that Paul is basically condemning the argument of the false apostles when they commend themselves. He, he's basically saying, these guys have puffed themselves up, they've commended themselves to you, they've written their own letters of recommendation to you, and for whatever reason, you bought it. For whatever reason, these guys, even though they don't have a character to back it up, even though they don't have the standing that Paul has, for whatever reason, they've gained a hearing in the church at Corinth. And so what Paul is going to have to do is engage in a little bit of the same kind of logic, the same kind of rhetoric that they have used, because desperate times call for desperate measures. And there's no doubt that Paul is uncomfortable in proceeding this way, so he says, would you bear with me in a little foolishness? You've born with them in plenty of foolishness, bear with me in just a little bit of foolishness. Paul is very reluctant as he walks forward on this path. And what I want you to see is that even as he walks forward on the path that the false apostles have forced him to, he's going to remain humble, he's going to remain broken, he's going to remain realistic about who he is. It's interesting, it's interesting the way Paul engages this road that the false apostles have put him on. Secondly, he talks about jealousy. What I want you to see when Paul talks about jealousy in verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Paul is motivated in everything he says and everything he does with the church at Corinth by his desire for the best for them. He wants the best things for them, and he wants the best things for the kingdom of God. He's not willing to allow these beloved children in the faith of his to be wooed away by these false apostles who are preaching a different Christ, who are preaching a different gospel, who are encouraging them to receive a different spirit. He's not going to allow that. In the same way, I will not allow someone else to walk into our house and our marriage and woo Laura away from me. I love her too much for that. I want the best things for her, and the best thing for her is me. So there's a jealousy there that's a good thing, right? I don't want someone else getting in the way and causing trouble, so I'm going to fight for her. And it's the same way with Paul. He is jealous for them because he wants the best thing for them. And the best thing for them is not him, it is Christ. And these guys have stepped in and are trying to lead them away from Christ, and so he's jealous for them. Just like God is jealous for them, right? God wants the best things for us, and the best thing for us is him. And so if anything else gets in the way and tries to woo us away, he's going to get jealous and step in and correct that. And that's the kind of way we need to understand the jealousy that Paul is talking about. Overall, in verses 1 and 2a, we need to see Paul's great concern for them. Paul's great love for them is what leads him down the track he's going to go. 
The next thing we see in verse 2b is a very interesting illustration that Paul is going to use from the Old Testament to describe this jealousy, to describe his relationship with the church at Corinth. This is huge. Look at verse 2. It says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. To understand this, we have to understand a little bit of what was going on in Jewish betrothal custom, okay? Because it's so radically different. What, the way the, the Jewish people um, connected folks in marriage, radically different from the way we connect folks in marriage. The idea of betrothal or engagement in Jewish culture, way different from betrothal and engagement in American culture, okay? So we need to understand what's going on in the background of this in order to understand Paul's point. So let me fill you in, okay? The way Jewish betrothal would work is that a father would commit his daughter to a certain man. All right, now sometimes this happened as she was a, a teenager or a young adult. Sometimes it happened as she was a child. So the father commits the daughter to a certain man. You with me on this so far? And they become engaged or betrothed. And that commitment is a very serious commitment. This may be one of the biggest differences between us and them. Today, we give someone a ring, and it's kind of temporary, it's kind of impermanent, it's not a huge commitment, but when someone in Jewish culture was betrothed to someone else, it was a high-level commitment. So high, in fact, that in order to dissolve that connection, there had to be an, uh, an official divorce. Does that make sense? In order to break up a, an engagement, there had to be an official divorce. So sometimes, after a father uh, committed his daughter to a certain man, there was a great long period of time where they lived in that commitment, but there wasn't consummation of the marriage. You with me on this? So there was a long time where she was committed, but there wasn't consummation, and the father of the bride was responsible for her purity during that period of time. That's the key to this whole thing, that the father of the bride was responsible for his daughter's purity from the day she got betrothed to this man to the day she was married to this man and their relationship was consummated, the father was responsible for her purity and his reputation was on the line. His reputation was on the line because if she became impure during that period of time, he would be shamed. If she became impure during that time, she would be shamed. If she became impure during that time, the, the husband-to-be would be shamed. There's a lot riding on this whole situation. So the father would make every effort to maintain the purity of his daughter until that day of consummation. Got it? Now look at what Paul says in chapter 11. He says, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. This understanding of what's going on in Jewish betrothal helps make sense of some of what he's saying here, right? He says, my role is as your father. My role is as your father in the faith. And I have committed to you to one man, that is to Christ. And it is my responsibility until that day, until that relationship is consummated, which is what Oshel read about a little while ago, right? It's what you read about, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we are together with him finally at this table, and it is glorious, and we worship God. <laughs> I love the way you said that. Worship God. That's the way it's supposed to go. And until that day, though, Paul says, 
he is somewhat responsible for the purity of the church at Corinth until they get to that day. So he doesn't want someone else coming in and defiling that marriage. It is his duty. It is his role. It is his responsibility to watch over them and protect them and maintain their purity. Are you with me on this? If you're a dad, you should totally get this, right? You want to protect your daughter. You want to watch out for her purity. You want to present her, a pure virgin, to her husband on that glorious day. Oh, man. Let me tell you about the first wedding, about, about four or five weeks after Sophie was born, right? I did a wedding at our church in Mississippi, and here I've got this brand new, I'm a dad for the first time, and I've got this little daughter, and I can't wait for her to grow up and all the things she's going to experience. And at that first wedding I did, which wasn't her wedding, clearly, um, somebody else that I didn't even really know, and this girl in a white dress starts walking down the aisle, and I'm just wrecked, sobbing, weeping. I'm thinking, I've got to get it together before everyone turns back around and looks at me. Because I was thinking about my responsibility for Sophie until that day. I'm to watch over her. I'm to be the one responsible for her. I'm her man until someone else becomes her man. And that's a huge responsibility. And Paul says it's the same way with him and the church. He wants to watch over them and present them to Christ as a pure virgin on that glorious day. And so that's why he's so worked up about these guys. It's not about his offense. It's not about their personalities. It's about the church and the glory of the gospel in the church. We need to see in this verse that it couldn't be heavier language. It couldn't be a heavier responsibility. It couldn't be more emotional. It couldn't be more affectionate. And once again, this shows Paul's great love and his great concern for the church at Corinth. You need to get that. He loves them and he cares about them. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, I think, are the key to the whole passage. Look what he says. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If you take out the, the clause in the middle of that, the almost parenthetical thing about the the serpent and Eve in the garden, this is basically what Paul says his concern is. He says, I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He's afraid of this. He's afraid that this might happen. He's afraid that these people he loves so much, he's afraid that these people he's invested so much in, he's afraid that someone else is going to come in and lead them astray from their pure and sincere devotion to Christ. He's afraid of this, and so he's going to do everything he can to make sure that doesn't happen. You with me? Okay, this helps make sense of the language he uses earlier about foolishness. Bear with me in a little foolishness. It helps make sense of what he says about jealousy. It helps make sense of what he says about the pure virgin that he wants to present to Christ. Then, in the middle of this concern, he uses an image from the Old Testament to explain it. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This image should communicate the gravity of this situation. That scene in the garden when mankind fell was the worst thing that's ever happened, right? Can, can you think of a story that's worse than that in Scripture that has more devastating consequence than that in all the Scriptures? Paul likens what's going on at Corinth and the effort of these false teachers. He likens what's happening there to what happened back in the garden. I want you to see this is heavy, heavy stuff. 
And I also want you to see that the pattern that happened in the Garden of Eden is the same pattern that's happening in the church at Corinth. It's the same pattern that's happening in the church in America. It's the same pattern that's happening in our individual lives. Satan is predictable. He works the same way most of the time. What he did then, he is still doing now, and we need to be aware of it. The first thing that Satan does in the garden is he causes doubt. We're going to give you three D's to explain the scheme of Satan against you and against this church and against the church at Corinth. First, he causes doubt. You remember back to the garden? First few chapters of Genesis, you've read this a few times, right? Probably in January every year when you start down your road to read the Bible in a year, right? You've read this a lot. Satan says, did God really say not to eat from this tree? Right? He raises this little bit of doubt. In the church at Corinth, he says to them, he says to them, is Paul really such a good guy? Can you really trust his preaching? After all, he suffers so much. He suffers so much and he doesn't take a paycheck from you. Can you really trust him? In the church in America, Satan says to us, can you really trust that preacher of yours? Or, or maybe worse yet, can you really trust that Bible that you've got in your lap? I mean, after all, it's a really old book, and it's been translated so many different times. Can you really trust it? One of the first things Satan does when he comes after us is he causes doubt, or he at least tries to bring doubt into our minds. Can you really trust God? Is he really trustworthy? Is he really as good as you think he is? Second thing he does is he brings denial, a flat-out denial of the truth of God. First, he causes us to doubt the truth of God. Secondly, he flatly denies the truth of God. In the Garden of Eden, he tells them, you will not die, right? Eve says, yeah, 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 he, he told us we could eat of anything in the garden except this one tree, and if we eat of it, we will surely die. You remember what he says? You won't die. You won't really die. He brings a flat-out denial of the truth of God. It's what Satan does. It's what he did in the garden. It's what he's doing in the church at Corinth. Those false apostles who are spokesmen of Satan, you're going to see that later, they are saying Paul is a hypocrite and Paul is a liar. You cannot trust him. This gospel that he's preaching is not true. And in America, the denial is you don't really need Jesus. Jesus isn't the only way. First, Satan brings doubt then he brings a denial, and the last thing he does is he brings a different truth. And let me explain it this way. A different truth is a lie. It's just another way to say a lie. There's only one truth, right? But truth doesn't start with a D. So we needed a D. Different truth. He tells Eve, you'll be like God. If you just eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And he just doesn't want you to be like him. He offers a substitute truth, which is really not a truth at all. In the church at Corinth, they say, follow me, follow us, and you'll be just fine. Leave Paul, leave Paul's gospel, take us, take our gospel, and you'll be just fine. And in America, he says, as long as you're sincere, as long as you think positive thoughts, you can believe whatever you want and still go to heaven when you die. What's more is, lately, he is speaking through some prominent preachers, there's no other place to go but heaven because there is no hell. These are the lies that Satan brings to us. First, he causes us to doubt God's word. Secondly, he denies God's word. And thirdly, he brings in a replacement truth, which is really not a truth at all. It is a lie, and it is a damning and condemning and destructive lie. 
right? Can, can you see that that's the, way God, that's the way Satan has worked from the beginning? That's the way he worked in the New Testament? And I want you to know that's the way he works here. And that's the way he works here in our individual lives as well. He wants us to doubt. He wants to deny. And he wants to replace the truth of God with a lie. This is the pattern he used then. It's the pattern he uses now. We need to be aware of this. If we are aware of this, we can defend. If we are aware of this, we can fight. We need to be aware of it. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's very subtle, the little twists he puts. Sometimes the difference in the truth that he brings to us is just a little different, but it's enough to take the gospel away. It's enough to take the truth away. So we have to be aware that that's the way Satan works. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, he lays it all out. No more speaking in illustration. No more speaking in vague, veiled terms. In verse 4, he lays it out and he says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And I don't, I don't think we need to see, see Paul saying, you bear it beautifully, way to go. I think we need to see him saying, you bear it beautifully, and that's terrible. In fact, I think that this passage is a lot like Galatians chapter 1. Just a couple pages over, go there. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Similar thing going on in that church. False teachers have come in, they've perverted the gospel, they've distorted it just a little bit, and they've wrecked it in the process. People are, people are inclined to follow them, and this is what Paul says to those people that he loves so much. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel, which really is not another. You get that? He's not saying, oh, I hate it that you're going from this gospel to that gospel. That gospel isn't even, an, it isn't even a gospel. It's not even good news. The Christ that the false apostles are teaching is not Christ. The gospel they are preaching is not good news. He says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. There's one gospel. There's one Christ. There's one spirit. That's the one we preach. Don't accept anything else. No matter how slick the preacher is, no matter how eloquent he may be, don't accept anything other than the gospel that you have heard from the beginning, the gospel that saved you, the gospel that changed you, the Christ who died for your sins and rose again. Don't accept anything else. Paul says, these guys are given to you another Christ, another gospel, another spirit, and here you are, you bear with it beautifully. To your shame, you bear with it beautifully. To our shame, as the American church, we bear with it beautifully. Paul is calling for them to change. Calling for them to deny these false teachers and follow him. Follow the real Jesus, the real spirit, the real gospel. Look what he says in verses 5 and 6. There's some debate in these verses about what he means by eminent apostles. Is he's referring to legitimate apostles like James and John and Peter? Or if he's 
calling these false teachers by a name that they have adopted for themselves, super apostles. Some of your translations say super apostles. I think that's the better, the better option here, that he's chastising them. He's making fun of them for the name that they call themselves. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. I consider myself not in the least inferior to your super apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul is not inferior to these men. These men who speak so well, who are so eloquent and so powerful and so charismatic, Paul says, I am not in the least inferior to them. Not because Paul's eloquent and charismatic, right? In fact, that was the text that Jason read. His whole point in 1 Corinthians was, I didn't come to you that way. I didn't come to you with rhetoric. I didn't come to you with lofty speech. I didn't come to you with big ideas and human wisdom. I came to you with a simple message, right? We preach Christ and him crucified. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Why? So that your salvation and your faith and your confidence wouldn't rest in the preacher, but in the power of God. That your confidence and your assurance wouldn't rest in a man, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And Paul says, I'm not inferior to these guys. He says, I may be in speech. I may not be as slick as them. He says, but I know the gospel. Look what he says. He says, even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. I wrote in my notes that I will take the simplest country preacher in overalls and a straw hat who really knows Jesus, who really walks with Jesus, who has really been changed by Jesus over the slickest, smartest dude in a suit on the television who has no clue about the grace of God or the power of God or the Christ of the gospel. I take that simple country preacher who says, all I know is I was lost and now I'm found. All I know is I was blind and now I see, and all I know is that Jesus did it. I take that guy over the guy that flies himself around in his private jet and maybe knows nothing about Jesus, right? Paul says also at the end of this, this is huge, at the end of it all, he says, and you'll really know, you'll really be able to tell those guys who really know Jesus, track his logic here. He says, even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. He says, I'm not just making this bold claim. I'm not commending myself to you. He says, look at my life. Look at my life. I invite you to observe all the things I have done around you. Does that not make evident that I know Christ, that I follow Christ, that I belong to him? Paul says that's where the confidence is. It's not in Paul. It's in Christ who saved Paul. It's in Christ that Paul preaches. Does this make sense to you? If you've been with Jesus, it'll show. If you've been with Jesus, they'll be able to tell. In fact, that happened in the New Testament, right? Surely, people said, people observed the apostles and they said, surely, these guys have been with Jesus. Surely, they've been around him because they look like him and they talk like him and they live like him. But these false apostles, they have not. Four applications today. And then we're done. Number one, we must be aware of Satan's scheme and how he attacks the church and how he attacks us as individuals. He wants your mind to be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He wants to bring doubt, 
Does it really say, does the Bible really mean he wants to deny the truths of God? It does not. In fact, what I hear today is it could not. The argument that I hear coming from Satan in the church today is not only does the Bible, does the Bible not say that, the Bible could not say that. Right? They will indict God. They will bring him into all this. The Bible could not say that because that's not the way God is. God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, right? And he's completely consistent. What it says, it means, right? So he will bring doubt and he will bring denial and then he'll bring a different truth which is really just a lie. This is what you need. You just need this, this, and this. Be aware that that's how Satan is attacking us. That's how Satan is attacking you. And sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's people who knock on your door it sounds like they're talking about you. Man, it sounds like they're talking about the gospel that you've known. Man, it really sounds like they're on the same page with us. There's a subtle little twist in there somewhere, and they are not talking about the Jesus of the Bible, and they are not talking about the gospel that saves, and they are not talking about the spirit of God that indwells his people. Be aware, this is how Satan works. So, number two, because this is the way Satan works, we need folks who love us and are jealous for us and will work to keep us pure to present us to Christ on that last day. Because there is this war, and Paul inserts himself into that war, and he says, I want to protect you, and I want to present you as pure virgins to Christ on that last day. I don't want someone else to come in and lead you astray. I want to watch over you by preaching and teaching and living before you the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need those people in our lives, right? So thank God for pastors. Thank God for Sunday school teachers. Thank God for parents and big brothers and big sisters and friends who are watching out for us, knowing that someone is trying to get in there and lead us astray, and they keep teaching us the gospel over and over again, and they keep living out before us the Christian life over and over again to protect us. Thank God for those who protect us, who are jealous for us with a godly jealousy and want the very best things for us, right? So if you're thankful for those people, you need to tell them you are thankful for those people. Application number three is, not only should we be thankful for those people, we should be those people. We should be those people for other folks, right? Somebody's watching out for you. Who are you watching out for? Who are you jealous for? Who are you concerned that someone might come in and lead them astray and lead them away from Christ to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all? Who are you watching over? Who do you love? Who are you jealous for? I hope you can look around and say, there are a lot of folks in this room, a lot of folks in this room that I'm jealous for, that I care greatly about, and I'm concerned for. And the last application draws it all together, I hope. The key to this whole thing, this whole love relationship, is not a program. It's not even these people that I'm talking about. It's the real Jesus. It's the real gospel. It's the real spirit, right? It's the real Jesus that makes a difference. The Jesus who was God in the flesh, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. The real Jesus who went to the cross, not because of what he has done, but because of what you have done, right? The real Jesus who was beaten and mocked and scourged and nailed to that cross and crushed by the wrath of God for your sins. The real Jesus who died your death and rose victorious over it. The real Jesus who lives today, right? Get ready, we're going to celebrate that next week, something big, right? 
So get warmed up a little bit. The real Jesus who lives today. Are you kidding me? That's it? Real Jesus who lives today. Who is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. The real Jesus who is coming back to get his people. To get his people and set it all right. The real Jesus is the one that makes all the difference. And the real spirit is what we need. The spirit of God that indwells his people. That convicts them of their sin and reminds them of things they've been taught. That helps us as we study the scriptures and helps us as we apply the scriptures. We need the real spirit of God, right? And we need the real gospel. The real gospel that says you cannot save yourself. The real gospel that says you, because of your sins, only deserve death and hell and punishment and wrath from God for all of eternity. But, but God loves you. And he sent his son for you. And Christ died for you and rose again for you. And he can forgive. And he can reconcile. And he can give you a new heart. He can raise you from the dead, and he can adopt you into his family. And you respond to that great truth with repentance, turning away from sin, and faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's what we need. That's what we need to protect us. That's what we need to protect us from those who would come in and try to lead us astray. We need the real gospel. We need the real spirit, and we need the real Jesus, the one and only Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you. Thank you for folks who love us and are jealous for us and will work to keep us pure, to present us to Christ on that last day. Thank you for pastors and Sunday school teachers and families. Thank you for dads, especially dads, who love us and want the best for us. God, help us to be those folks for others. Help us to love and work for the sake of others. Help us to protect the purity of our children in the faith. God, make us more and more aware every day of Satan's scheme of doubt, denial, and of lies. Help us maybe all the more to fix our eyes on the real Jesus, by the real spirit, because of the real gospel that powerfully and miraculously saves. Help us to focus on the truth so that we will not be led astray by the lie. Help us as your people live for you. And God, we pray for those who are in here today who are not your people. They're far from you. They are already led astray by the lies. God, I pray that today you will bring them back, that you will bring them to yourself, that you will awaken their hearts, that you will open their eyes and their ears to see the truth and hear the truth of how desperately they need the gospel, how desperately they need Christ in their lives. God, I pray that you'll show men and women and boys and girls their sin and the reality of judgment against their sin. I pray that you will show them the glorious truth of Christ on the cross for them dying in their place as their substitute. Show them that he took their death and he rose victorious over their death and over hell and over sin. Show them, give them right response of repentance from sin and faith toward God. Give them a trust that is deep and profound, relying on Christ alone for their salvation. And God, we ask that you do this not for their sake, not for our sake, 
for your own name, for your own glory, for your own renown, here and in all the earth. In Christ's name we pray.